Welcome to Growth Island, your go-to podcast on how to be the best version of yourself. Now, let's join your host, Mess Freeze, as he interviews high performers and experts in nutrition, meditation, exercise, relationships, business, general health, and life's bigger mysteries. Welcome to this episode of Growth Island. My name is Mass Fries and I'm your host as always. Today we're going to talk about psychedelics, something that's a lot in the news and there's more research pouring into that. And for that, I found a professor, as I always prefer to do. And not just a professor, an emeritus professor. And for those of you who are not in the academic world, that means they're like at the top, they have been there for many years and they're really experienced. So this is not someone that just became a professor. And just to say, becoming a professor takes a lot of work takes many years and it's kind of like the top so all of the management consultants these are like the equity partners in the firm so uh, the top top within academia so i got the uh, dr wayne holland he is a professor at the university of queensland he's been advising the who uh, about health effects of cannabis use the effectiveness of drug substance treatment and a bunch of other stuff he's also a lot into the ethics of different studies and then he started looking more into psychedelics. So Wayne, thank you so much for coming on. You're welcome. So if we just start, how did you get into uh, looking further into psychedelics? Well, it's a bit outside my usual uh, range of interest. As you mentioned, cannabis has been at the center of my research interest, but I've also looked at alcohol, opiates and cigarettes. And I guess uh, psychedelics became a sort of COVID project because I was uh, we went into lockdown here and I was wondering how I was going to spend my time. Uh, I just retired from full-time academic work, and so I was looking around for interesting subjects. I'd noticed that there was a lot of interest in psychedelic drugs uh, amongst people who were promoting medical uses of cannabis. I read Michael Pollan's book, How to Change Your Mind, and uh, became quite interested and in, started reading widely in the history of uh, psychedelic drugs, particularly in the early 50s and 60s, um, why that research was abandoned and then read uh, in uh, about the recent clinical trials of uh, psilocybin and MDMA for depression and post-traumatic stress disorder, respectively. Yeah. So if we just um, quickly say, what are psychedelics for someone that's like, I know what cannabis is, I know what uh, alcohol is, what are psychedelics? Well, they're, they're not a, a single class of drugs. There's a, a wide variety of very different drugs which produce fairly profound changes in in perception and thinking. Uh, they're often described uh, as producing the sorts of effects that we only experience often in dreams uh, or when we're delirious um, that is seriously ill. But in this case, uh, the effects are, uh, are ones that most people can distinguish from uh, regular daily wake wakeful states and they typically tend to be reasonably short-lived. They are often seen as producing very profound uh, mystical type experiences that people report. Uh, so they're, they're an interesting class of drugs. I guess the, the classic examples have been LSD, uh, psilocybin or magic mushrooms, and MDMA, which is not often included in the classes, is, is one or ecstasy as it's known and by its street name. Uh, those are the sorts of drugs. Uh, older ones are mescaline, ayahuasca, uh, which are the sort of plant-based drugs from uh, the peyote cactus and um, 
a Brazilian vine. Uh, so there's a wide variety of plants and uh, pure uh, drugs that produce these effects. And one of the ones that I've heard a lot about is ayahuasca uh, mm-hmm. from Peru, where that's just like spreading around the world that people go and uh, participate in these ceremonies. And I mostly hear the good stories, um, but I think that's also the ones that are being reported as it's still illegal many places. So I'm quite curious about like, who shouldn't be doing this and what do we actually know from a research perspective? I'm personally very curious, but I don't dare to judge it before another 10 years when we have proper research. Uh, I don't want to, there's certain things I don't want to experiment with and certain things that I'm more willing to. And this seems to be, at least my understanding, a category that can be mind opening, but potentially also really dangerous. What's the, what's the status on the research and what you found so far? Well, there's not a lot of work on that particular drug. I mean, as you say, it's, there's, there's enormous amounts of drug tourism. There's people setting themselves up as uh, shamans who uh, put people through these drug experiences. Um, lots of claims made and lots of positive experiences. I mean, there have been some bad cases, cases of people dying in the course of these uh, events uh, or experiences. Uh, I mean, on the face of it, the typical experience is people vomit uh, profusely for initially. Uh, so the, the effects, the initial effects of these drugs are not very pleasant, but then people report having visions and experiences and uh, having their lives transformed. Well, I guess, you know, I'm old enough to remember the, the psychedelics were the first time around in the late 60s and early 70s. They were everywhere when I started at uh, university as an undergraduate. And they were heavily promoted and there was a lot of people using them and a lot of claims made for them. And certainly I knew a lot of people who didn't go crazy, but ended up believing pretty absurd things and following some pretty doubtful, morally doubtful uh, gurus, uh, such as Richard Alpert, who became Baba Ram Das, Carlos Castaneda, the Bhagwan, who led the Rajneeshis, and of course, Timothy Leary and Hunter S. Thompson. So there were a lot of uh, crazy things said and a lot of people misled. And I think one of the big concerns about those drugs is that... uh, People who, I mean, I think when used under clinical supervision in the ways in which they have been very carefully by people doing clinical trials, uh, that can be safe. But I think they're very much open to abuse if people of morally doubtful character get involved. And I mean, the most high profile example of that, of course, is Charles Manson, uh, who used LSD in uh, the late 60s in California to uh, induce people to commit some pretty horrific crimes. And he was a career criminal with a long history of violence and um, and so on. But uh, he used misused the drugs in those particular ways. And it's not hard to find other examples. We had a very similar cult of uh, around LSD in Australia in the 70s and 80s. So people get involved in this, become quite inflated in their views of themselves and their importance, and attract disciples and followers and form cults around themselves, which uh, often involve the abuse of their members. So I think they're, they're often the risks that we run if these drugs became widely used without uh, appropriate care and, and supervision and used by people who may not have the, the best of motives. What are some of the results we're seeing in regards how it can actually be useful? Well, we've got clinical trials being done by some pretty serious researchers in the US and the UK and in other countries, in Switzerland as well. 
And in the clinical trials uh, to date, with reasonably small numbers of patients, highly selected, I mean, a lot of these trials have excluded patients with more complicated psychiatric disorders uh, in order to minimise the risk of misadventure. But in, in that sort of setting, the, the results have been quite encouraging. And that in the case of psilocybin, people have reported uh, pretty immediate uh, and very substantial reductions in depressive symptoms that have often resisted treatment with more conventional treatments. And in a small number of cases, uh, these patients have been followed up for over a year or more and uh, their benefits appear to persist. So for that reason, the Food and Drug Administration in the US has given these drugs expedited uh, approval so that they, they can be trialled. And they look like if the results hold up in larger studies, uh, they may well be approved. And very similar findings for MDMA, but in that case, the, the treatment, the condition being treated is post-traumatic stress disorder rather than uh, depression. There's also smaller studies, less well-controlled, of a variety of other psychedelic drugs being used to treat addictions and other uh, more common forms of disorder, such as anxiety disorders and so on. So a lot of enthusiasm, a lot of excitement about these drugs, which is understandable given that we really haven't had a lot of uh, new drugs introduced into psychiatric practice for probably uh, 10 or more years. So that's the reason for the excitement. Uh, I guess the concern has been expressed just in a, an article in the last day or two in uh, the Journal of the American Medi uh, Psychiatric Association saying that the, the concern is that the the enthusiasm for these drugs may well get well ahead of uh, our knowledge of who, which patients are most likely to respond and how to mitigate or, or minimise the risk of serious adverse events. Hmm. I had another professor on from a top university in the US who looked into ketamine. He, he had reached uh, many years into his uh, profession of studying different things within depression and something. He was just like, we need a new innovation. There got to be something else that's working better. And he saw with mm. severe depression that ketamine was extremely effective. Um, but one of the yeah, chances I mean, was it's, it's generic mm. drug. So there's not that much. It's hard to find the funding. He found, I think yeah. it was Johnson Johnson that took it and made, made a nasal spray because they could patent uh, the delivery mechanism. And that was being, it wasn't as effective as uh, how you could do ketamine uh, administrated with a psychiatrist, but uh, that was being pushed a bit more and still a, a decent solution, but not the best solution. Yeah, I mean, ketamine is a good example. I mean, as you, as you just said, it's a now a generic drug because it's out of patent. It's been used for as an anesthetic agent rather than as a treatment for depression. And, you know, there's probably a lot more research that's been done on that. Uh, demonstrating uh, quite a, very similar to psilocybin, a reasonably rapid and substantial improvement in clinical symptoms. The big drawback with ketamine is that the effects tend not to persist. So patients often need to be retreated. And so I, I, I think the, the one of the reasons for the interest in psilocybin is that's not the case, or doesn't appear to be the case, at least in the early trials in that patients reporting uh, improvements which needs to be sustained for up to six months and more. So um, so I, I guess that that's a, a major part of the, the reason for the interest in those drugs, as you said, that the, the drugs, the SSRIs, the selective serotonin reuptake inhibitors that were introduced in the 90s are, are now getting plenty of bad press. Uh, they're, they're not as effective as they were hyped up to be initially. 
And, you know, there's downsides with the use of these drugs because people have to take them daily for long periods of time. And it's often difficult to stop taking them without experiencing withdrawal symptoms. Mm. Um, so it's understandable why there's an interest in looking at more effective antidepressant agents. And that's a major reason why there's so much interest, particularly in psilocybin. Have you had a chance to look at any literature if there is anything on microdosing? Because we hear a lot in Silicon Valley and many high performers that are like microdosing different things. And I have a friend who did it and um, yeah. that didn't work out well for him. His eyes, he like, he, he just seemed to off. But then at the same time, you hear many stories about people that uh, find it highly effective and so on. Yeah, I mean, uh, the difficulty with that is you're taking subtherapeutic doses, discriminating between that and placebo. Uh, I know there's been some studies done with people who claim to be uh, claim all sorts of benefits from microdosing, where they're they're given the drugs under double-blind conditions and they really can't distinguish between the placebo and the active agent. And I guess that would be the challenge with that. I think it's sort of a larger question that you know how should we evaluate new therapeutics? Um, and the tradition has been to require evidence from randomized controlled trials. And that's been a challenge for the psychedelics uh, because they produce such obvious effects it's difficult to disguise that uh, from the patient that they've received a psychedelic rather than a placebo. That's less of an issue for uh, microdosing. So, uh, I mean, it's probably open amenable to, uh, more amenable to research for that reason. Uh, I'm not aware at the moment that there's enough out there to draw conclusions other than the sort of anecdotes and uh, patient testimonials that, We've received, we're receiving about them. I mean, I guess, I guess they're the sort of hippie types of testimonials when we've just been through similar claims made about hydroxychloroquine and uh, ivermectin in, in the case of treating COVID. I think we have to be wary about people telling us about the benefits because it's easy to be misled uh, unless you've got uh, evidence from, from better control trials. I guess it's also hard to find the like funding for it because there's so many, you could say, more important things that we want to figure out in the world. How can we treat depression? Then how can we make someone perform a little bit extra? Um, I guess well, I think a... there's an interest in treating, doing trials on depression. And in fact, the Australian government has recently allocated $15 million for clinical trials of these drugs. So I think the fact that the, the trials that have been done to date largely with philanthropic money Yeah. have produced reasonably positive results has made it hard, made it easier for people to get funding. One from from new uh, for-profit companies because there's, there's a number of for-profit companies that are now funding clinical trials um, of uh, not so much the specific pharmaceutical but often the, the way in which it's been produced or synthesized. Hmm. Um, so you, you've got uh, Compass Pathways, for example, that's been prepared to do that. And I think there will be more government interest. I think the fact that the FDA has given um, a sort of advanced approval for clinical trials of these drugs will make it a lot easier for people to get funding from uh, more traditional funding sources. Hmm. But you also so think I, with I think, microdosing, where it's not for therapy, but it's for top performance? Yeah. Um, well, I think there where you might well expect it to be philanthropic funding for a while. Uh, given that it's not treating a, a particular uh, medical condition. Um, but I, I think some of the groups that have been doing work on the clinical uses have been uh, looking at 
research on microdosing. So we might well expect to see some, some work done on that as well. Are there any specific groups where you would say these need to be extremely or extra careful about testing out microdosing or something else? Well, I think people with psychotic illnesses um, or symptoms, psychotic symptoms, would probably be well advised to stay away from these uh, these drugs. I mean, I, I, when I was a, an undergraduate, I worked in a vacation job as a, a psychiatric nurse, and that was back in the early 70s when these drugs were out and about uh, widely used, and we certainly saw individuals come through the acute psychiatry ward Uh, people with schizophrenia who'd had a bad time using these particular drugs. And it's interesting that the early researchers, Osman and Hoffa, who did the work in Saskatchewan in the, the 1950s, their primary interest was in schizophrenia, and they did some uh, work, uh, gave the drug to some patients with that disorder, but ended up recommending against using LSD uh, in, in patients with psychosis. I think the same would probably be the case with people with severe forms of depression, um, other than the psilocybin, um, because uh, some severe forms of depression may well involve uh, people having psychotic experiences. So I'd have to, I mean, not that one shouldn't ever do it because I know there are clinical trials being planned for the use of psilocybin in the treatment of bipolar disorder, but it, it would be something that would be done with, with caution and before we started doing that routinely in clinical practice. Where do you think this is going to be in 10 years' time? Uh, that's that's hard to know. Uh, I mean, it, uh, one could think of an optimistic uh, scenario and less optimistic scenario. The optimistic scenario would be that you know, the clinical trials, the larger clinical trials are done, the results uh, prove uh, as positive uh, as the early results. Uh, these drugs are uh, introduced into clinical practice. People develop experience in their use becomes clearer which patients will benefit from them and um, they become a routine part of clinical practice. So that's sort of the optimistic outcome. And I guess the worry I have is that we end up replicating a lot of the silliness and absurdity of the uh, 60s and 70s when these drugs are widely used outside medical supervision and we see misadventures, uh, people dying perhaps, I'm not expecting that to be a common event directly from the drug, but if people become psychotic uh, and and do dangerous things while intoxicated, they could have misadventures or, or end up killing themselves. It doesn't take many events of that sort to bring a drug into disrepute, and so that's the worry uh, that we could have there. Or if we see a lot of these drugs being abused by uh, cultists and um, would be self-trained shamans, then we might see much more restrictions on their use, which make it harder to use these drugs uh, in, in clinical services. So I guess it's not clear to me where, where we're going to go, but I guess they're sort of best case and, and worst case scenarios. And one would hope for something in between there where the drugs might not be quite as miraculous in their effects as, as, as claimed now, but there clearly will be uh, patient groups who benefit from their use mm -hmm. uh, and we're able to, to use the drugs in ways that um, uh, minimize the, the risk of misadventure and, and maximize the benefits that patients receive. Why is it that we had so many years where this was not part of academia? It kind of uh, I think there's a, 
Yeah, I mean, obviously the fact that these drugs were illegal made it a bit harder, but not impossible because there was research continued in the US till as late as 1979, which is nearly 10 years after the drugs, uh, uh, psychedelics were included in the Controlled Substances Act. And work was done in Switzerland in the 1990s, despite the fact that these drugs were illegal under international drug control treaties. So it wasn't impossible to do research. I think there was a lot of suspicion of these drugs and of people who might get involved in doing research on them because of the the history of the, the 60s and 70s. So certainly uh, people looking back at that period said there, were, there was strong advice given to younger researchers coming through that you just stay away from researching those drugs because it puts your reputation at risk. So I think there was that. And, you know, and I think the other is it's not that easy to do research on these drugs, uh, clinical trials, randomised controlled clinical trials. I think that was one of the other reasons why uh, uh, research wasn't done. And, of course, you've already mentioned the fact that the pharmaceutical companies weren't interested because these drugs were out of patent, so there wasn't the incentive uh, to uh, fund clinical trials. Makes sense. And I think um, it's different what circles you're in. Sometimes people are like, ah, oh, it's so bad. The farmer, like, only want to support these different things. But I also come from a business background, so I very much understand they need to get a return. And I think it's yeah. a challenge with many things that are good is that uh, it's harder to get the funding. There needs to be governmental funding and so on. Uh, same with food, forest walking and so on. In Japan, that's bigger and so on. But many of the things that you can patent, it's harder to get the really good science on how it actually works and if it works. Yeah, well, I mean, it doesn't just apply to drugs. It applies to psychological interventions as well. Mm-hmm. Uh, that's that's a point that a former colleague of mine, Gavin Andrews, a psychiatrist, made, I think, 20 years ago, that uh, the drug lithium, for example, uh, it was very difficult to get funding for clinical trials there. It's a drug which is very effective in treating bipolar disorder, and particularly uh, the symptoms of mania. Um, and that was because it was a naturally occurring salt that no drug company could patent. Mm. Um, but it also applies to sort of behavioural therapies and cognitive therapies that uh, that were developed. Most of the research has been done by publicly funded uh, researchers and getting that into clinical practice has, has been a challenge. Yeah. You also do a lot of studies into cannabis. Yes. Um, well, both recreational cannabis use and, and medical uses. What are some of the interesting findings there? And I can imagine as well for your academic career, now you talked about looking into magic mushrooms and so on could be dangerous. Um, that must well, have been the cannabis. Uh, well, not not really. I mean, if, in the early career, it was mainly around the adverse health effects. So there's a lot of interest in funding that. Um, less interest in, in funding research on medical uses. Um, but I guess one of the advantages about being an emeritus professor retired is that um, you don't much care uh, about uh, reputation and so on. It's um, You can live on whatever intellectual capital you've acquired um, to follow your interests more than might have been the case when you're dependent on, on funding. Um, so to answer your question about cannabis, I mean, there clearly is evidence of medical benefits, but I think they've been oversold. And I think medical cannabis has primarily been used as a Trojan horse for legalisation in both Canada and the US. And it's being now used in the same way in Europe and Australia and other countries. 
So the legalisation advocates have recognised that the, the best way to get cannabis legalised is to do it in the guise of medical treatment, uh, where you have it, uh, you legalise the prescription of cannabis, basically in the absence of lots of evidence of efficacy and safety. Uh, and once you do that, it, it becomes a lot easier to persuade people that cannabis ought to be legalised. After all, if it's a medicine, it means it must be safe and effective and so it can't hurt you. Uh, there's also, I guess, a lot of the meme about it being a natural herb and so we know natural products can't hurt you. Um, you know, things like arsenic and asbestos and tobacco, uh, they're harmless because uh, they're all natural. Um, so I think there's there's been a lot of overselling uh, of medical cannabis. And I think one of the interesting downsides of legalisation is that the incentives to do the clinical research on medical uses uh, largely disappears once a drug is legal, because why would you bother funding clinical trials when people can buy it, um, mm. any adult can purchase it. And that's what I think we've seen in the US and Canada as well, that there hasn't been any increase in, in serious clinical research after the legalisation of cannabis in those places. So just to understand, so the studies that has come out about uh, cannabis having positive effects and so on, um, you think most of those studies are not big enough sample sizes, the quality is not good enough, or uh, you're taking and taking the results and like making them bigger than they actually are? Or? A bit of all of those. I mean, you start with the, the, the case where I think the evidence is strongest uh, is, is around epilepsy and cannabidiol, the sort of non-intoxicating cannabinoid that's found in the cannabis plant. I think there, you know, there's there's pretty good evidence that it reduces seizure frequency in, in in children with epileptic syndromes, and it's probably going to prove to be more generally useful as an anti-epileptic. In the case of things like nausea and vomiting, which was one of the indications for which uh, THC or tetrahydrocannabinol has been approved for, for nearly 30 years. Um, uh, it's better than placebo, but not by much. Um, and there are a lot better drugs around nowadays than were, were that was the case in the 1980s when the very early trials were done. Uh, if we look at AIDS-related wasting, well, people don't develop AIDS-related wasting these days because we have effective antiretroviral drugs. So those were, were two indications that are often brought up. And in both cases, well, probably stronger for the anti-nausea effects than for the age-related wasting. The effects are not particularly strong. And in the other case of chronic pain, we, we have been involved in doing some very big meta-analyses of the clinical trials there. I mean, it does, THC does have an effect on pain, but it's pretty, pretty modest. And um, it's not much, there's not much difference between cannabis and placebo. And we estimated from our trials that you needed to treat sort of 20-odd patients with THC to get one who had a substantial clinical benefit from uh, from fusing cannabis for chronic pain. But you wouldn't know that from the claims made about these drugs in the sort of, uh, I guess, the popular literature about their medical uses. They're, they're sold as basic panaceas that can treat just about anything and everything, including COVID. And we have all sorts of claims made about cannabis was a, was a treatment for COVID um, during the recent pandemic. So I think we've got overselling here and there's, there's been a surprising lack of critical attention to these claims made by the media. 
mean, if a pharmaceutical company was making the sort of claims about uh, cannabis, uh, about its products as people have been making about medical cannabis, there'd be an uproar. But because it's a, a naturally occurring herb, people have been prepared to wave it through. And so I, I think there's also been, a, I've noticed, a double standard in that the evidence that people are prepared to accept of the benefits of cannabis is much, much weaker than the sort of evidence they demand if we're talking about adverse effects. When it comes to looking at adverse effects, they suddenly become super sceptics. Mm. Oh, you can't draw causal inferences from observational data, they'll tell you. But that's exactly what they do when it comes to uh, a lot of the uh, putative benefits of medical cannabis. What do you think is one of the biggest challenges in the health space and with different claims and so on? Because it, it is a jungle to figure out like what is what is making the like what is actually making a difference, right? And it might be making a ten percent increase, um, but you could do something else that makes a twenty percent increase, right, or decrease. So, yeah, yeah. I mean, I mean, randomized control trials are the are the most reliable way of doing that. Uh, there hasn't been a lot of interest in that in the case of medical cannabis. Uh, well, for both reasons, from the point of view of the pharmaceutical industry, uh, with the exception of the cannabidiol CBD, there's not been a lot of interest in in doing clinical trials of THC-based cannabis products. There's a, there's more of it now, but lots of that's been done with government funding, and that's largely been in response to patient demand for access to these drugs. Um, So governments have, have been prepared to fund clinical trials. And, and of course, there'll be some time before we see the results of those trials. I'm aware that uh, trials that have been done uh, here in Australia that have just not really supported the, the sorts of claims made by advocates. And of course, the media have largely ignored those. So it's it's very easy to get media focus on the benefits or the alleged benefits of medical cannabis, there's not a lot less interest in what we learn from clinical trials that look more critically at the evidence. Interesting. What are some of the things that you've seen that works really well against someone that has an addiction? Because I looked into some of all the literature they wrote and that's something you touched several times. Well, it depends on what sort of uh, addiction we're talking about. Um, When I guess in the case of the opioids, the heroin and so on, the, there's a pretty large literature showing that uh, opioid-assisted therapy, that is giving people a longer-acting opioid like methadone or buprenorphine via the oral route is a good way to help them get their lives back in order to remove themselves from the illicit market from having to engage in drug dealing or criminal behaviour to fund their drug use and also provides people with an opportunity to uh, rehabilitate, to get an education that they might have missed out on, to repair relations with families, um, uh, get employment and, and, and get their lives back together. Uh, for a lot of the other drugs, for alcohol, I mean, there are various drugs that can assist people uh, in maintaining abstinence, but none of them are fabulously effective. Those are things like Naltrexone uh, for, for alcohol, acamprosate. Um, and there's been a lot of investment, particularly in the US, from the drug research centers there in funding clinical trials uh, of drug treatments for addiction that have largely been pretty disappointing in their results. In the case of nicotine uh, dependence, we, we know that uh, 
uh, nicotine replacement can help people get through uh, withdrawal. There's encouraging evidence for the value of e-cigarettes in helping people quit um, for the same sort of reason. It's much closer to smoking than chewing gum or putting on a patch. Uh, not very good with the stimulant drugs uh, like methamphetamine and cocaine. Not for want of trying. There's been enormous numbers of clinical trials of potential agents to treat those disorders, but not a lot of success. And we do have psychological treatments, which are very helpful for people with those problems, but uh, often it's difficult to get people to engage in treatment and to stay in treatment long enough to benefit. Uh, in the case of cannabis, we, we don't, uh, I mean, I think it's worth making the point that people do become dependent on cannabis. I think that's underappreciated as a risk uh, of cannabis use. And it looks a lot like alcohol dependence in the sense that once people get caught up in daily use and it goes on for long periods of time, they often find it very hard to stop. And the, the sort of treatment that's most effective is often involves pretty major changes in one's life. Um, is one of the things that sustains both alcohol dependence and cannabis dependence is having lots of friends who use alcohol and cannabis. Uh, and often it's much easier to change your friends uh, than it is to stop using these drugs if your social network is one in which they're widely available and the use is encouraged um, and engaged in by lots of people around you. Um, so no magic cures there. I mean, we know what can help, uh, but it's um, you know, a lot of treatments that have been around for a long time. I mean, obviously groups like... Um, Alcoholics Anonymous and Narcotics Anonymous are sort of self-help groups that help people remain abstinent. And that involves, I guess, developing a, a new social network of people who don't use drugs um, as a way to support your abstinence. Good. When you got uh, very far in your career, many people, like, not everyone gets to become a professor or a meditative professor and get it so far as you do. What do you think are some of the things that got you to where you are today? Oh, lots of luck. Um, I think that's one has to be honest about that. Uh, I mean, I got into drug and alcohol not as a, a first choice, um, but because I was uh, teaching undergraduate medical students, which was a pretty unrewarding life, because the medical students typically had the view what psychology got to do with medicine. Um, they had a fairly mechanistic view of Their, their job was sort of mechanics of the human body, uh, repairing it and treating it with drugs and what did they need to know about people. Um, so I was doing that for a while and a job came up, uh, was advertised to do research on alcohol and other drugs. Well, I thought I'll give that a try and see what that's like. Can't be uh, any worse than what I'm doing now. And I got into it and uh, found it much more engaging and interesting than I thought. And I ended up spending... I guess the better part of 12 years running a large research center, initially doing a lot of work on uh, heroin and then cannabis and amphetamines and alcohol. I then took a break for a while and moved into the area of ethics, as you mentioned, um, public policy and ethics, particularly around new, bio, new uh, biotechnologies, uh, new genetics, uh, neuroscience and so on, and ended up drifting back into the addiction area because a lot of work in neuroscience and genetics has been done on addiction and trying to think about what the cash value of, of that research was, you know, how useful could it be. 
And uh, I guess I've just been fortunate that interesting opportunities have come up as I've, I've done work and taught and uh, I've just taken the best of the opportunities that presented themselves and had a lot of fun and worked with a lot of bright young people who make life more interesting and more productive. So it's not just something you do on your own. It's, uh, you know, it's a bit like drug use. It's something you do in the company of other people who have got similar interests. <laughs> I think that's the first time I heard academia being like drug use, but I like it. <laughs> what, um, it sounds like it's been a good ride, Wayne. What, if you had to give uh, three advice for the listeners about how to live a happy, healthy and meaningful life, from your experience, what would that be? Well, I guess do something, uh, well, don't pursue pleasure in and of itself as your, your primary aim. And I think that's one of the errors that people who get into difficulties with drugs uh, do. And they pursue the euphoric effects of drugs and you know that often leads to uh, various sorts of problems that, that people find difficult. I guess finding a, a rewarding career or, or work If you can work uh, in, in on things that you enjoy and interest you, you're well in front. Uh, even better if those things make a difference to the lives of other people. I mean, these are sort of fairly banal pieces of advice, that, um, but uh, I think they're, they're ones that, that'll work for me. Um, and take the whatever opportunities life presents itself uh, to you and, and make the most of them, I, I think. Uh, That's certainly what I've I've done. Fantastic, Wayne. Thank you uh, so much for sharing. And last question: Where can people find out more about you? Uh, I guess you Google me. Um, there's various websites that the university still has up, which is which has got publications on it, and there are a variety of of interviews that I've done uh, on various topics over time, which I think you can probably get through the web. You know things on cannabis policy. In fact, I think there's a, a, a an interview that I did, which was on my career, how I, my career in the addiction field, that was done some uh, four or five years ago, which I think is probably up on the web on the journal Addiction. Um, so it, there's various ways you can find out about me, and I, I guess if you look at Google Scholar, that'll throw up a lot of uh, my publications, which. Uh, I've generally aimed to write in ways that are accessible to an audience other than my peers. Um, and you've got to write for your peers, but uh, I think it's also important to write articles that, for a broader audience of people who might be interested in the topic um, uh, that you're working on. Yeah. Is there anything that I didn't ask you that I should have asked you about in this talk? No, I think I think we've covered uh, all the ground. Fantastic. Well, Wayne, thank you so much for coming on the show. I really appreciate it. You're welcome. Thanks for listening to this episode of Growth Island. Be sure to subscribe for more episodes on how to be the best version of yourself. And if you found this show helpful, then please leave us a review so more people will learn about the podcast or share with a friend who can benefit from it too. Thank you again and have a wonderful day.